Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. In this episode, historian Gerard Besson uncovers the colonial foundations of Caribbean cosmopolitanism through the Magnificent Seven, Port of Spain in Trinidad. The Queen's Park Savannah in Port of Spain, Trinidad, is the epicenter of the annual carnival celebrations, where tens of thousands of people dressed in colorful costumes in bands of glittering thousands parade and dance in the streets. Lining its western edge are seven magnificent buildings built at the turn of the 20th century, each one so original in design and craftsmanship and color and in authenticity that British architect and illustrator John Newell Lewis once thought of them as queens of the bands. John was one of those Britishers, a Welshman actually, who came on a visit and stayed. He even became a judge of the Carnival Queen competitions, which is a parade of beautiful women who portray, on the Sunday before Carnival, the very essence of the bands with gigantic and spectacular costumes. Eclectic and as gorgeous as the costumes, the Magnificent Seven, built around 1904, reflect the cosmopolitan nature of Trinidad and Tobago. Nowhere in the Caribbean can you see a Scottish castle, a New England country house, an archbishop's palace built in the Romanesque, a Corsican manor, Moorish-inspired, and a French colonial wrought iron extravaganza all side by side overlooking an expanse of about a hundred green acres dotted with ancient trees that shock into yellow, blush with a pale pinkish lilac, and surprise everyone with vermilion flamboyance not to mention the Easterlies or Savannah Breezes. But beyond their cosmopolitan facade, they also stand as a testament to Trinidad's long history of imperial engagement with Britain, which lasted from the conquest of the island by Britain in 1797 to independence in 1962. From the advent of Sir Ralph Woodford, the first civil British governor of Trinidad in the early 1800s, to the close of the 19th century, Trinidad saw the end of African slavery in the British Empire, which was followed by a breathtaking act of British imperial social engineering that transported hundreds of thousands out of India to the British West Indies. The Queen's Park Savannah, on whose western side the Magnificent Seven now stands, was once a sugar estate. Sir Ralph acquired it on behalf of the colony's government and turned it into a public park. By the 1900s, it was the place to be for those wishing to become a high ecclesiastical, a cocoa baron, an oil entrepreneur, or an aspirant to a university education in the mother country. We Trinbagonians are all here because of sugar. But Trinidad was a late developer, receiving a population only from 1783. It is in this regard different from the early 17th century sugar economies like Barbados or Jamaica. Trinidad is more the product 
of the French revolutionary conflicts in the Caribbean. These revolutionary upheavals brought an established plantocracy, both white and free-colored, equipped with slave labor, mostly from the French West Indies, into Spanish Trinidad. The Royal Navy captured Trinidad from Spain in 1797. For a long time, Trinidad's population was mostly a French-speaking one in an English colony that had Spanish laws, with a sugar economy that flourished under the whip. After the emancipation of the enslaved, the arrival of Indian indentured workers on five-year contracts saw the sugar industry expand to the extent where Trinidad boasted the empire's biggest sugar refinery, the Great Usine, at St. Madeline's Estate. Then the most delicious thing happened. In 1847, Joseph Fry discovered that he could make moldable chocolate paste by adding melted cocoa butter back into Dutch cocoa, along with lots of sugar. By 1868, a little company called Cadbury started boxing these candies in England. Trinidad was well prepared to supply the growing chocolate industry in the mother country. Cocoa had always grown here. The Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture, later the University of the West Indies, was established here to study our cocoa. Fresh from the forest, Trinidad was the most flavorful on the market. Perhaps surprisingly, by the late 19th century, the cocoa industry created an economy that actually worked for a lot of local people. While imperial preference had propelled sugar, sugar had been a rich man's affair, but cocoa? Cocoa was every man's. From small plantations to massive ones, the cocoa industry had a trickle-down effect on the island's economy. An educated middle class began to develop. An elaborate bureaucracy emerged. Respectability became all the rage, and the first cocoa barons started to appear. Around 1900, the government farm that occupied most of the old St. Clair Sugar Estate adjacent to the Queen's Park Savannah was sold off to them in lots. The biggest and most expensive lots faced the breezy green savannah. Cocoa also brought a new wave of people to Trinidad. These were very different from the old planter class that had been comprised of the educated free blacks and people of color and of their cousins, the white French planters, who had brought their slaves here. These new people came from Great Britain, France, Germany, Corsica, China, from all sorts of places. Arriving to join them were the Middle Easterners, who were immigrants and refugees from the failing Ottoman Empire. From this veritable potpourri of people perpetually on the boil, a culture emerged, irreverent, subversive, musical, almost in all matters, obstinately individualistic, it challenged the conventions of the Victorian era. Nowhere was this expressed more clearly than in the architecture of the time. The gingerbread houses of Port of Spain were inspired by the recently invented Victorian jigsaw that produced a variety of wooden fretworks of white lacy patterns which appear to have been draped over the houses, filtering light and air past hanging plants and ferns into wide galleries. The essential skeleton is a high, gabled, acute-angled gingerbread house of the witch in Hansel and Gretel, bristling with pinnacles and weathercocks, spiked and frilled along the copping, pillars and caryatids from the Parthenon, from steep 
roofs grow the spires of Hohenschwangau and the cupolas of Kiev. Patrick Lee Fermor, well-seasoned traveller, writer and polyglot, might have been speaking about the thoroughly French Rudal mansion, the most ornate, wanton and bizarre of the Magnificent Seven. It was originally built by André Ambard, a French cocoa baron who went bust and sold it to Timothy Rudal, an Indian cinema magnate. The Rudals still live there, underscoring these buildings' enduring spell. The Magnificent Seven of Queen's Park West are outstanding examples of this age and stand as a testament to the local craftspeople who created them. Take the mansion Millefleur, with its three-story tower and pepper-pot roof with a fleshy on top. It was a birthday present from a wife to her husband. Mrs. Henry K. Prada came from a wealthy Caracanian family who had fled one of Venezuelan revolutions. Her husband worked as a doctor in the public health sector and practiced medicine for free. Mel Flair was later bought by a Corsican haberdasher, who then sold it to a Lebanese ketchup manufacturer. Now it belongs to the government and has been beautifully restored. Stolmeyer's Castle has an equally international history. This family came from the German city of Ulm to Trinidad in the late 1840s. Impecunious, Mr. Stolmeyer took in the garrison's watching and sold coconuts on the Queen's Park Savannah. He was soon in the cocoa business and was one of the first in the oil business, exporting pitch from the Lake of Bitumen in the south of the island, from which roads and highways were built all over the British Empire. Stolmeyer built a castle supposedly modelled on Balmoral in Scotland. It is no coal country house. Rather, it is a splendid tropical castle with wide shady galleries all around. He called it Kalani after a town in County Derry, Ireland, a place Mrs. Stolmeyer wished to visit. So, as John Newellowis remarked, here was a German who built an untypical Scottish castle in Trinidad and called it an Irish name. John thought that Stolmeyer had by this time become a true Trinidadian because only Trinidadians do these things. What John meant by saying that Stolmeyer was a Trinidadian was that he had built himself an Ajupa, which is the name of the dwellings built by the island's first peoples who had in mind the shady filtering of dappled sunlight and the circulation of fresh air. In many respects, these buildings cannot be explained because they make nonsense of historicism. They are pure architecture and reflect the irreverent, free-spiritedness of the place that escapes the ponderous, humorless hand of the precedent. The first of the Magnificent Seven was the Queen's Royal College, designed by the German David Hahn. It is a medley of Renaissance and Venetian details in red brick and blue-grey limestone coining, built about a tall clock tower. It was and is a very good school. It was originally modelled in its curriculum after the British public school. The neighbouring tropical manor house, Hayes Court, is the Anglican bishop's residence. 
painted a pale French grey with rusticated coins. It has a cast-iron-framed gallery that wraps around its conservative Englishness. Designed by a Mr. Pottero, it relaxes the eye after the exuberance of the college because of its pastel shades and the manner in which it reposes on a peaceful lawn. The Catholic Archbishop's Palace is Romanesque, a style that originated in the monasteries and a charming monastery it resembles. Trinidad was originally a Spanish colony that, because of history, was populated by a largely French-speaking population. This made it a Catholic island. With the conquest by the English in 1797, which was followed by a military occupation of about 16 years that did not involve itself with matters religion. Sir Ralph Woodford, as the first governor, was tasked in the role of facilitator. One of his first undertakings was to build two cathedrals in the city, one for the Anglicans and the other for the Catholics, who were by far in the majority. Throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th, the nature of this crown colony's politics was arranged between the English party, the officials who ran the colony's administration, and the Catholic interests in the Legislative Council that had its moorings in agriculture. With the Catholic interests linked to a nascent form of nationalism expressed in the Creole Party, and the will and purpose of the colonial officer's intention demonstrated through the actions of the island's governor, whose word was absolute, Trinidad and Tobago being crown colonies achieved a lightly balanced equanimity that was in the main beneficial to all. The Magnificent Seven may be seen as an example of this even-handed approach. They were designed by European architects living here and built from local materials in the main by local labor, funded through the new money that was making the rounds during the height of Trinidad's economic peak by virtual newcomers. The people of the town were proud of these mansions, and the pitch walk around the savannah was a favorite place to promenade, what with the police band playing soldiers of the Queen in the bandstand and an electric tram clanking along so that everyone could enjoy them. Whitehall is the largest of the Magnificent Seven, a Venetian palacio with Moorish-style trifoliated arches from the Scottish firm of Taylor and Gillies. It gives the impression that it was carved out of one single block. Actually, it is built of coral imported from Barbados and cut into blocks on site. It was built by Leon Agostini in 1904. Agostini came from the town of Lurie in Corsica and became a Coco Baron par excellence. Construction during the last opulent days of the Coco Planters heyday it passed into the hands of the Henderson family. They rented it to the American army, who occupied a part of Trinidad during the Second World War, and then the mansion became the home of the British Council and was purchased by the colonial government in 1958. It became the office of the first Prime Minister, Dr. Eric Williams, in 1962. In occupying a colonial residence and making it the seat of governance, he was making a political statement that demonstrated the end of the plantocracy against a rising nationalism and a shift away from the agricultural economy. Because of the abundance of oil and natural gas in the island, this meant a move towards a petrochemical industrialized economy. 
Perhaps Whitehall's history explains why the Magnificent Seven have remained objects of pride that have survived the transition from colonial to republic. Close to 120 years have passed since the Magnificent Seven were built, in the days of what we might consider the Trinidad Raj. Their flamboyance visually reflects Trinidad as the most cosmopolitan, though ironically undervoiced, experiment in British colonialism. British Prime Minister George Canning did describe us as an experimental colony. The Magnificent Seven were never seen as indicators of imperial dominance. They are perceived, if they are thought about at all in that light, more as symbols of the tolerance and social harmony that characterizes Trinidad and Tobago. They whisper to us something of our past, something light-hearted and airy, happy follies, built in reflection of the adjupas of our very first people. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.